Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this Flint briefing call on the situation in Ukraine. It's the fifth that we've done in this series. I'm Simon Fraser, Managing Partner at Flint and former head of the British Foreign Office, and I'm in the chair. I'm joined today by Sir Julian King, the UK's former EU Commissioner and former British diplomat, by Sam Lowe, who is a director at Flint and our trade expert, and François-Joseph Chichan, who is a former French diplomat and was head of the political section at the French Embassy in London. It's now over a month since the Russian invasion began. Uh, we seem to be seeing some emerging shape of the war. Russia's campaign is in trouble in much of the country, and they say that they've revised their military objectives, curtailing the assault on Kiev, focusing attacks on southern and eastern Ukraine, although the evidence on the ground doesn't necessarily bear that out completely. Direct negotiations between Russia and Ukraine seem to have made some limited progress, for example, on the question of Ukraine's status. But Western governments remain very sceptical about Putin's commitment to these negotiations. So while we should avoid jumping to conclusions, the question we're going to examine today is, can we now say, in the light of these developments, that we have reached some sort of turning point in this war? Or is this just one of many bends in a long road ahead? We're going to take a view on where things stand and on how the next phase of the war could play out militarily, diplomatically, and via sanctions. The call will last less than 30 minutes. So to kick off, uh, François-Joseph, I'm going to turn to you. Before we look to the future, can you run us quickly through where things stand after one month, including the most significant developments on the ground and in the diplomacy of the past fortnight? Thanks, Simon. So I think one month into the war, uh, what is striking is that Russian gains have been very limited. And at the same time, they came at, a, at an enormous cost for the country, both economically and militarily. The main Ukrainian cities remain under Ukrainian control. Uh, Russian grip on some of the cities or territories that it uh, seized over the past few weeks seems fragile. If you look, for example, at Kherson in the east. And Putin even is even losing ground in some areas, such as Aaron Kiev, for example, uh, where he voluntarily paused the operation and withdrew some troops over the last couple of days, um, officially to allow for negotiations to continue. And, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, fighting in some areas remains intense with dire consequences on civilians. There are now more than 4 million refugees outside Ukraine, 7 million uh, displaced people inside the country. So in total, that is one fourth of the Ukrainian population that has been displaced since the start of the war. So overall, Putin's initial objective to go quickly has failed. He's achieved none of its goals so far, and he will need to make some gains at some point. So this might be the meaning of the renewed focus on Donbass in the coming days and weeks. In parallel to these developments, we've seen, um, as you said, negotiations between Russia and Ukraine continue over the past two weeks. They seem to have made some progress this week, according to both sides. We'll come back to that in more details. But this apparent progress was met with lots of skepticism in the West. And I think it's important to keep in mind that disinformation is very much part of the war playbook on both sides and on the Russian side in particular. So this could all be part of a deceptive maneuver. And remember that right before the invasion, Russia uh, effectively lied about it, it, its intentions. 
on the global diplomacy side, it's been very active as well. In the West, the focus has been on displaying unity, implementing sanctions, closing any loopholes, and of course, managing the economic fallout of the crisis, particularly on energy prices. And uh, yesterday, we've seen Biden releasing some of the US strategic oil reserve um, to help keep the prices down. Biden was in Europe last week. Um, one interesting development as well is that the EU and the US have strengthened the dialogue on Russia and sanctions. It's no more structured. So EU is sort of taking control of what is essentially a, a foreign policy tool. Uh, and there are open questions here. For example, where does this leave the UK? That is still unclear at the moment. China is still very much at the center of attention. Um, the Russian foreign minister met with his Chinese counterpart this week in China. There will be the EU-China summit today, where Europeans will try to convince China not to provide military or, military or economic assistance to Russia. And China is still keeping uh, some sort of balanced approach so far, at least. Um, another country I wanted to mention is India because uh, the UK Foreign Secretary and so actually the Russian Foreign Minister as well were both in Delhi at the same time this week, which is quite telling, I think. India has kept a neutral stance in the war so far. Um, it's been considering buying discounted Russian oil. So will the West manage to bring India into the fold? I think this is very much a test of whether the West, the West can broaden its group of allies and aligned countries beyond uh, NATO and the G7. Uh, one last thing I wanted to mention is the pressure, I think, in uh, the periphery of Russia's sphere of influence. We've seen turmoil in Serbia in the past couple of weeks. Azerbaijan as well seems to want to take advantage of the crisis to advance the position in its conflict with Armenia. Um, instability in Ossetia and Georgia as well, where the, the war in 2008 started. Uh, so these, these frozen conflicts seem to start melting and that potentially can add new fronts into this crisis. And he's, he's putting really in control of all of that. That remains to be seen. But in, in any case, I think it shows how the Ukraine crisis has the potential to further destabilize an already very unstable neighborhood. So overall, if we look at the big picture after months, I think things seem to be moving again on the military front and on the diplomatic front as well. We are certainly entering a new phase, but we need to be cautious about drawing clean conclusions at this stage. Okay, thank you very much, Francois-Joseph. Very interesting, I think, what you said there about the situation on the periphery of Russia and the, the sort of heating up of the frozen conflicts. That is a development we should keep a close eye on. Uh, Julian, I'm going to turn to you now then um, to answer this question, if you would. I mean, do you think we are genuinely at a turning point in this war, uh, both militarily and diplomatically? Obviously, the stakes are rising here for Putin as he appears to be getting bogged down. Uh, but, you know, is this a significant moment? Is this a big shift or do you interpret it as something less than that? Uh, well, good morning. Uh, uh, I don't think Putin has uh, necessarily changed his, his objectives. He still wants to dominate. And if he can't do that, to divide and destabilize Ukraine, that's what he's about. What has changed I think, is his ability to achieve uh, his objectives. I mean, if you think back a couple of weeks ago when we were doing this, uh, we were talking about um, different degrees of probability of Russian success. You know, we were, saying at, we were saying at that stage there was maybe a 40 plus percent chance of grinding out something that could be presented as a, as a victory. Now I think we're looking at uh, the degrees, the likelihood of outcome, outcomes that are really Russian 
being frustrated uh, and degrees of Russian failure. Uh, uh, as Francois Joseph was saying, uh, Putin's aim was rapid regime change, and that's failed. Uh, it's difficult, given where we are, to see Ukraine being wiped out. Uh, indeed, as Francois Joseph has just been sitting out, the events on the ground really are sort of grinding into some kind of, of stalemate. Uh, the various timelines are, are stretching out. And if you look ahead, even medium term, it's difficult to see scope for anything beyond a very qualified success for Russia and Ukraine, which in itself, of course, raises the stakes, as you say, both in Ukraine and more widely, uh, internationally, internally in Russia. Uh, frustrated, weakened Putin is potentially even less predictable and more dangerous. Now, that's not an argument for reducing the pressure, but I think we do need to be aware of, of that risk. Okay, thank you. So uh, a sort of balanced response to my question there, some significant change, but let's not overinterpret it is how I read that. Um, and so in practical terms, what does that mean? Uh, you're the keeper of the Flint scenarios, Julian. Uh, what does this mean for how things will play out over the coming months? Um, can you take us quickly through your latest view on the different scenarios ahead and their probability? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, it's it's not a keeper of of you know um, ultimate wisdom. These are scenarios, uh, of probabilities. Looking again three months ahead, so to the end of June, because beyond that it really becomes uh, quite difficult. And and there are four uh, main scenarios. Scenario one, uh, stalemate. We're now putting that at forty plus percent probability. You know, fighting on different fronts, uh, but limited breakthroughs, no knockout blow. Uh, Russia dealing with its losses, reorganizing, Ukraine getting uh, continued support, including materiel, so that it can maintain an effective response, counterattacks on some fronts, what, what Francois Joseph has been uh, describing. But I think the question remains in this scenario, how sustainable is it in the medium to longer term? You know, given, the, given the scale, the geography, the neighborhood, the, view, the views of, of neighboring countries, uh, the commitment of the parties, the stakes, I think it's still more likely that this uh, over time would evolve into some other uh, scenario or outcome. Scenario two, uh, Russia uh, still declares victory. That's still there, 20, 25% perhaps, notwithstanding all we've been saying so far. Uh, Putin uh, holds Crimea. If he extends his control in the Donbass uh, and around the, the Sea of Azov, around Mariupol and the Southern Land Corridor, uh, he, he could uh, then you know, move to declare victory, uh, not least given his control of Russian domestic media. I mean, he, he tells the story. Uh, but in this scenario, given, given the costs uh, and the criticisms that he's, that he's faced, including some criticism uh, internally, uh, the gap between that outcome and his original war aims uh, and deployments, I think there has to be a question how sustainable that position would be uh, over time or whether uh, Putin would have to um, ramp things up. Third scenario, uh, spillover uh, outside the Ukraine theater, still having that at around 10%. It's not happened yet. Uh, it is a possibility uh, by accident, a bomb falling in the wrong place or design. And I think that's more likely to be some form of cyber attack out of Russia, 
uh, which which could become more likely as Russia chafes under the sanctions and looks at some way of of, of hitting back. Which brings us to scenario four, uh, negotiations leading to some form of settlement. Uh, that I think we're putting at 25, 30% in, in this time frame. Uh, we've moved beyond mediation now. We've got direct negotiations, again, as we've covered in these, in these um, uh, briefings. There are some positive noises coming from both sides. Uh, you can have doubts about motivation and sincerity, and there's some misinformation, as Francois Joseph mentioned. But I think you also have to look at the, the structural issues and challenges for any uh, negotiation process. Uh, it is possible to um, see uh, a negotiation leading to progress on, on ceasefires, but those obviously would have to be borne out on the ground. And even around, as you mentioned at, at the start, uh, issues of status and neutrality, where there are, there are models and, and precedents that exist. Uh, possibly around Ukraine's European vocation, but don't expect any early progress um, actually towards EU accession. But all of those issues really would only be uh, uh, stage one of any negotiations. You need also to address questions of security guarantees, territory for Russia, sanctions relief for Ukraine, reparations and reconstruction. All of those issues are very complicated and inevitably, any discussion about them will be drawn out, which is, uh, if you like, the common thread to all of these scenarios. Uh, it's unlikely that this is going to come to an early uh, conclusion. It's much more likely that it's going to be drawn out um, through either an unstable stalemate, uh, an unstable Russian position, complicated negotiations, all of which underlines the importance of, of sanctions, I think, as pressure, as leverage and raises the questions about whether they can be sustained, ramped up, if the circumstances merit, wound down. And the politics and practicalities of sanctions are going to remain absolutely central to this story for some time to come, in my view, Simon. Thank you, Julian. Very clear set of scenarios there. Um, very helpful for framing our thinking. Uh, so thanks a lot. So, Sam. Let's turn to you. Uh, we're, we're, let's look at this question of the Western position and sanctions. I mean, so much of our policy depends on the effectiveness of sanctions and their impact on Russia's economy. Um, so are we now in a position to assess their effect on Russia? Uh, will they be sustainable? And are there opportunities, if necessary, to tighten them further? Do you think that's going to happen? And I suppose another question is, is there a risk that they will be extended over time further to cover other countries such as China? Could you give us your views on those issues? Thank you, Simon. So, so on the question of whether sanctions are effective, there's a growing divide between those who focus on whether Russia has access to foreign currency and the price of the ruble and those who focus on whether Russia can spend its dollars and euros and, and if so, on what and, and for those focusing on the exchange rate, the relative strength of the ruble you know, as a result of continued energy purchases, rules forcing exporters to sell currency and capital controls is evidence that sanctions are failing. But, but my view is that if you assume that the purpose of the sanctions is to, to debilitate the Russia's, Russians' industrial capacity and its ability to wage war, then they have, in, in that case, been broadly effective. Trading with Russia is now incredibly difficult. And Russia's ability to produce and maintain advanced weaponry is severely 
limited. Uh, or to put it another way, Russia might have a lot of cash, but it's struggling to find anywhere to spend it. And this, and this is akin to trying to spend, I suppose, a Scottish £10 note in Portsmouth. It's not impossible, but it's it can be quite difficult. And, and, and even if you are selling unsanctioned products such as medicines to Russia, getting them into the country is difficult because of the freight restrictions and the voluntary withdrawals uh, of, of, of freight carriers. And you also have no guarantee of being paid. So this, the, the collective sanction incoherence, in a way, creates a de facto sanction that's larger than its component parts. And I do think the message is cutting through, which is only trade with Russia if you absolutely have to. And, and of course, there will be some import substitution and circumvention with restricted products being brought in from other countries, such as China and India. But, but not all goods, you know, for example, Western high quality semiconductors can be easily replaced. And the fear of secondary sanctions is also leading to firms such as Chinese banks to be cautious uh, regarding their interactions with Russia. And, and I do think there's room for further escalation. Existing sanctions will continue to ratchet up and the US and allies can still uh, apply secondary sanctions in the form of penalties and restrictions on countries and companies that either help Russia dodge sanctions or benefit from access to discounted Russian commodities you could also see Chinese and Indian and other correspondent banks uh, being cut out of US markets in future as well. I, I suppose the, the sort of big question is on energy sanctions. And these, of course, remain very difficult for Europe, which would pay a high economic cost if they were to be imposed. However, this dependency does go in both directions. Putin's attempt to force energy buyers to pay in rubles is, is a confidence play, really. It's designed to reinforce Russia's global relevance, at least in the eyes of the domestic population and also to embarrass the West. I mean, in practice, the impact uh, of forcing um, energy importers to pay in rubles isn't actually that different from them buying it in dollars and then and then Russia forcing uh, the, the exporters in Russia to sell those uh, dollars and euros, which is what's happening at the moment. But in terms of the future, I think sanctions are here to stay. Each sanction is an individual point of leverage over Russia. If we just take one example, for uh, so the revocation of Russia's most favoured nation status in the context of the WTO and the subsequent application of tariffs and embargoes, Russia will be asked to make numerous concessions to regain preferential treatment. And in my view, it will be akin to rerunning its WTO accession negotiations, at least in respect of the countries that uh, have, have revoked its status currently. And but but if we take a bit of a step back, because the, the discussion then is okay. If these are working, is this a model for how the West could react in future in in, a, in different contexts? If if for example China were to invade Taiwan, and it's not clear to me that they would be effective if applied to China under similar circumstances. Because for, in, the, in, in the case of Russia, firms have been able to exit the market and write off investment due to the financial hit being relatively small. And we've seen that for companies with greater exposure, exiting Russia has been trickier. And I think that China would be significantly more difficult to exit with firms um, facing much, much larger losses. So I do think they're working in this instance. I'm not necessarily sure this same approach would work um, in, 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 a, in, a, in a related but different context. Okay, thank you, Sam. That's a very clear uh, expose. I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, it's interesting, this point about 
uh, if you try and read across to China, China, of course, has a much bigger footprint in the global economy and much more integrated than, than Russia is. Uh, so I agree it would be far more complex. But maybe that's uh, a discussion to have uh, on another occasion. Your conclusion is that uh, so far as Russia is concerned, for the time being, the sanctions regime is being effective. I think the evidence points in that direction. And you think that the West will be able to sustain it, although obviously the pressure will mount over time on that. So let's just draw this together now. Um, a, a final thought from me then. Um, it does seem to me that there has been some sort of psychological shift in this conflict in the last couple of weeks. As Julian says, I think it's hard to envisage now Ukraine totally losing this war, which you, at the beginning you would have thought was quite likely. And similarly, it's hard to envisage Russia totally winning it. And that is something of a turning point. But how that plays out, I think what we're saying is that how that plays out is still uncertain. And it's going to still be a long process with many difficult issues ahead, uh, both on the ground and in the politics. Now, not, not least of them, I think, um, uh, in addition to the list that Julian has given, is how and when sanctions might be lifted. It's not an immediate question. But Russia will push for the lifting of sanctions as part of any ceasefire agreement. And at some point down this road, Western leaders are going to have to face a very tough choice about this. How far will they be prepared to relax sanctions, especially those on Putin and his close allies, while he remains in power? And you're seeing this debate beginning to surface in recent days, for example, in the comments that Liz Truss made this week. Uh, and it's, of course, a very important issue for business. Uh, and I expect it's going to be one of the growing themes of the coming weeks. So we will come back to that question. But there's a lot of water still to flow under the bridge, I think, before it becomes real. Finally, uh, a little forward look. As Francois-Joseph mentioned, today the EU summit, the EU-China summit is taking place. Uh, negotiations between the Russian and Ukrainian governments are set to resume by video today. The Turkish foreign minister has said he hopes to host, host another in-person discussion in the next fortnight, so that's going ahead. Uh, we will continue our regular updates on the situation and the series of more deep dive analyses of key issues, which we've been doing. We look this week at the macroeconomic outlook. The next deep dives will be on the changing balance of power in Europe as a result of Ukraine. And looking further ahead, the apparent emerging divide between the West and much of the rest of the world in terms of how we approach the response to this war. So we look forward to continuing our engagement with you. Thank you very much for joining the call this morning and have a good weekend. Goodbye.